Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Joshua 2 as we're looking at the book of Joshua, our summer series. It's titled One Wise Woman. We're going to look at the chapter kind of in a whole. We're going to be looking at it. Again, I want to always encourage you to bring your Bible. If you need one, let me know. I'd love to give you a copy of God's Word so you can join with us. Joshua chapter 2. I don't know if you know this. Some of you might know. But did you know that treason is the only crime that is specifically mentioned in the Constitution of the United States? Treason is defined as giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Some infamous traitors in history are Brutus, who led the uprising and killing of Julius Caesar. Or Guy Fawkes, who, uh, who attempted to assassinate King James I along with the, uh, the parliament. Benedict Arnold, probably most of us know him, who turned against the Americans during the Revolutionary War. Stella Kubler, a Jewish woman who worked with the Nazis against her own people. Aldrich Amers, some who might be old enough to, to remember him, a CIA official who was a Russian do- double agent. And then, of course, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. Usually when you and I think of someone who's guilty of treason or a traitor, we usually don't think good thoughts for them. We want justice to be done. But today we're going to be looking at a, a woman who would be called a traitor to many, from, from many. As we read Joshua 2 this morning, we're going to consider Rahab could be a traitor to her own hometown of Jericho. She deceives the authorities about the whereabouts of the two spies. She hides them and then she makes a bargain for her own life and the life of her family at the expense of the rest of the city. But some also might consider, but what extremes would you go to save your family? Think about it. To what extreme would you do, would you go to save your own family from death? Rahab, though, can be considered not only a traitor in some respects, but when we look at her biblically, she's considered a heroine of faith. So how can this be? How could she be both a traitor and a woman of faith? How would you think about the events of Joshua chapter 2 and Rahab's lies and deception? This has been a chapter that's brought many people to some moral and ethical uh, uh, trying to understand what's going on here. Well, now that Joshua has settled in here, last week as we read chapter 1, sorry, last week, just as a matter of view, Joshua had, uh, had his marching orders for not only himself, but also for the nation, as they were called to be strong and courageous with the knowledge that Yahweh, that God, had promised to be with them and to go into battle with them before them in the conquest of Canaan as they finally come to the promised land, the place of rest that has been promised them since the days of Abraham. Let's pray as we just begin. Father, give us wisdom. Lord, let me speak uh, words that are clear. Uh, Let us know the difference between just my mere opinion and what your truth has. Again, this is an old book, very far removed from us, so it's hard to understand, especially with the story of Rahab, how this fits into our life. But yet, it's here. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and even for training in righteousness. So, Lord, how are we trained in righteousness through this story? Lord, I pray that you just give us clarity of mind, help us to to hear well. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would do its work. And we just want to celebrate this book of Joshua and just for preserving it and transmitting it to us so many years later for our edification. We thank you for this time in your name. Amen. 
Now that Joshua has settled into his role as the leader and the general of the children of Israel, he's now tasked with entering the promised land in order to drive out all of its inhabitants and to secure possessions of its cities, its farms, and all of its land. From verse 1, it seems that Jericho, as we get into Joshua chapter 2, it seems from verse 1 that Jericho is in the crosshairs as their first conquest. This is going to be their first battle. So with that, we look here in verse 1, and I think that might be in the screen here, but the rest will be on scripture in your Bibles. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, this is reminiscent of when Joshua was one of uh, 12 spies sent out to scope out the land, the cities and its inhabitants 40 years ago. This time, though, the report will be much different, as we'll see. The two spies make their way over the Jordan River and they enter into the city of Jericho and they head to the house of Rahab. Now, we've already seen how she's been described. The writer of Joshua describes her as a prostitute who most likely ran a brothel from her home. Now, at first, this would seem like an unlikely place for two Israeli spies to go. I mean, they were, they were to, they were to uh, refrain from this type of activity. But yet, this is where we find themselves. But in reality, this was really the best place to go if you were a spy. This is a great place to go to gather information. A brothel in those days would also serve much like you and I would think of the old school tavern or the saloon. Uh, it's a good place to mingle in a crowd, to be unnoticed and to gather information. They were not there to participate in any of the sinful activities, but to gather intelligence on the land, the topography, what they were to expect, Jericho's defenses, how, this, uh, how, wall and, or how high and how deep the walls might have been the strengths, the weaknesses, the population, etc. However, as we move on to verse 2 of Joshua, it seems that if the cat is out of the bag, the spies were not too successful in keeping their presence and purpose a secret. In verse 2 it says, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, understand that's where they were, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. Somehow, someway, their cover was blown. And the king sends men over to Rahab's house to find and arrest the men. However, Rahab has a different plan than the king of Jericho. As we come to verse 4, look at it with me. But the woman had taken the two men and had hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly for you will not or for you will overtake them. Now, as you can see, here's what hinges for many of us. The story of Rahab that brings some tension, some things to say, I don't understand what's going here. Instead of turning them over as she should as a good citizen of Jericho, she deceives the authorities with four different lies, four different deceptions. First one is the one misunderstood. I, I didn't know where they were coming from. I didn't know that they were spies from Israel. The second one was misdirection. Oh, oh they left when it got dark. The third one was she misled them. I don't know which way they went. I didn't know where they go. But then she misrepresents by promising them that if you go now, You'll catch them. 
Instead of turning the Hebrew spies over to the authorities, which she should have done, she gives them aid and comfort. The very definition of what treason is. Look at verse 6. Instead, she brought the men up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them, uh, with, you know, uh, uh, not going to find them, but the men chased after them all the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, flax is a plant that's made into linen. Typically, they were cut in about three foot long uh, stems and sections, and they were left to soak in the water, then laid out on the, on, in the sun to dry out. So their flat roofs of that day would have been perfect for that. But it's also a great place to hide some spies until it was safe to leave the city. Down in verse 15, we read that the house was attached to the city wall, which allowed them easy access to escape the city under the cover of darkness. Look there with verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built in the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And, they, and she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until they have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. Yet we're still left, as we see what she does, we're still left with the question of why Rahab put her life and livelihood in danger to help these men, especially when she learned their true identity and purpose. To find the answer, we need to go back to verse 8. And verse 8 is is jam-packed. This is where we're really going to find ourselves camping at. In verse 8, before the men lay down, Rahab came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. You may want to underline that, highlight that. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Now remember, that was 40 years in the past. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And look at verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, we've heard of these events. Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, now underline this, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's an amazing story there. Many times we read through these these, uh, descriptions very quickly. But what we're going to see here is is we're going to see something powerful for Rahab. We're seeing the reason why she becomes a traitor, so to speak. It seems that the words of the adventures of the Hebrew children have preceded them over the last 40 years. And Rahab honestly confesses that the people are terrified of Israel as they've heard of the miracle of the Red Sea and all of Pharaoh's army uh, being washed and drowned away as the rivers came back, the waters came back. They heard of the victories over these strong Amorite, Amorite kings. And she confesses and that she recognizes that the God of Israel has given the land of Canaan where she and her people have been living. For hundreds of years has been given to Israel. And that nothing can stand in their way. She now understands this. 
And these reports have drained the courage from the inhabitants, from the, from the king and from the warriors. And it's left them in, te- in fear, in terror and dread of Israel's appearance at their border. You could imagine just their own spies coming back and forth. Israel's getting closer. Is- Israel's getting closer. Then all of a sudden they're there for 40 years and, and they're just wondering what's going to happen. Uh, probably the, they're looking all the time and all of a sudden here they are just over the border across the river. The fear that they are here. The day has arrived. Seeing the writing on the wall, so to speak, she makes a bargain with the spies in verse 12. Here comes some practicality. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, knowing that the Lord is one, that the Lord is, the, is God, that he's given the land over to them. He says, now please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She's asking a big ask. For you and I know that God has already said that you're going to go to the land of Canaan and everyone is going to be devoted to destruction. Warriors, men, women, and even children, and in some cases, even their cattle, are to be totally destroyed. Now, that's a tough concept, and we're going to look at that in a week or two of why is God asking them to do what you and I would say is genocide? How can that be a righteous, just God? And I just give you a preview. He still is. He's a wise God. He's a good God. But they understand, so she understands that her life and the life of her family is in peril if she does not make some type of deal, some type of bargain. But what's interesting is in verse 14, the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, speaking of who they are and where they are, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down the rope through the window. Now, this is a bargain that they're just making on their own, but their life is at stake. They realize that the gig is up. If they're found, I mean, they're tortured for information and killed. So they make a spur of the moment bargain with her. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. You're dealing kindly with us. We'll deal kindly with you. You and I understand that. We, we do that. Someone's kind to us. We're kind back. Well, the writer of Joshua concludes this chapter with the spies, instructing her to gather all of her family into her house and to mark the house with a scarlet cord hanging out of the window. And with the spies reporting back to Joshua with the good news in verse 24, look down there at the end of this chapter, where the spies come back and say, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away. Because of us. This ends with a much different report with enthusiasm than the report by the 10 spies 40 years earlier. You could imagine how this would have encouraged Joshua and the people as they heard this report. This would strengthen their resolve, give them them, uh, the courage, knowing that the people are fearful of them. These children of slaves that have been wandering in the desert for 40 years, the people are in terror of them. Now, Joshua chapter 2 has always been an interesting chapter. Uh, It includes adventures, spies, uh, a wise and courageous woman, a a daring nighttime escape. Everything you need for a good good, uh, script right there for you. You can just write it right there. It gives us our first glimpse 
of the inhabitants of Jericho and the land of, Gen- uh, and the land of Canaan as you and I have been working our ways through Genesis and Exodus and through, through Joshua. It's a city filled with resident, residents. And you, got, you, you and I need to grab this because, again, it's a book that's so far that many times we read it and we don't connect with them. But it's a city filled with residents who had dreams and aspirations. They had fears and lives like many of us today. They had children that they loved. They had extended family. They had businesses. They had property. All these things were just like you and I. But they realized that they're about to lose everything. There's a couple things, though, I would like, to us, like for us to focus on this morning. First, that what I want to just look at is Rahab's deception. If you're taking notes, Rahab's deception. This scenario has served as a moral and ethical dilemma for centuries. As theologians, philosophers, ethicists, scholars, pastors, and even parents are left to explain Rahab lying to the authorities. This is one of the stories in the Bible that creates some tensions as we know that scripture, scripture teaches us that lying is a sin. Look at these verses here, just a few of them. Leviticus says, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Or how about Proverbs, lying uh, lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Or Ephesians, therefore having to put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak what? The truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Lying means to do or to deal falsely, to be false, to trick, to cheat, or to fraud one another. And it's very evident that Rahab is lying as we see here. We read how she deceived the authorities at least four different ways. Yet the question we still ask that still remains is she is the heroine of this story. So the question is, was it a sinful for her to lie? Was it a sin for her to deceive the people? Or was her deception uh, justified due to the circumstances we're like that, right? We, we want to justify our sin. We want, to, we want to find the loopholes that allows us to do that. So consider these scenarios that you yourself might be put in and already have. What extremes would you go in order to save yourself and your family? Would you lie? Would you deceive? Would you be willing to be a traitor to your country? Would you be able to do that? Would you be willing to do that? Have you done that? Have you been put in that position? Let me ask this. Would you turn someone in? was a family member. We talked about this. I had asked my family and several other people remember the story, tragic story of the young, uh, young little boy that was killed on the freeway at the 55. Remember he was shot and they were looking for them for several weeks. We had a picture of the car. Uh, they, they, had, they had an idea of what the people looked like. We knew they knew the time. Would you be able to turn in your brother or your sister if you knew that was their car? Or they most likely were the suspects? That'd be tough, wouldn't it? Or if you knew that your son was guilty of maybe robbing a store or involved in something that you know was very harmful to others? Now, we would say, of course. And everyone I asked that, but I said, but really, would you be able to? Would you struggle with that? What, what, how far would you go to save someone that you loved and care about? I mean, we, we lie all the time for, and cover for people, Right? You know, we, we do it the simple. Hey, is mom there? Uh, is, is, uh, tell him I'm not here. Uh, not here. So we do those little, little white lies, right? We justify it. Would you lie and hide someone? 
If they were unjustly sought after, what would you do with the Nazis looking for Jews? Or Christians in communist countries? Churches in Canada that are hiding in the woods, would you tell people where they are? These are tough things. And many times we're, we're faced with these moral things and we have to understand the Bible says that lying is wrong. We, we, we see that and it seems that it's a very strong condemnation, but here she is, she's lying. And so we're trying to understand this question. And let me say, these are tough questions and ones that I pray that we may never have to face. Some have argued that it's okay to lie to save a life or if it's in a war. You know, if you're a spy or in the CIA or something of that nature, or not to hurt someone, it's okay to lie. Scripture has many instances where our heroes of the faith deceived others. Remember Abraham and Isaac both lied about the relationship with their wife? Oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Why did they say that? Because they were afraid that they would be killed for their wives. The Hebrew midwives lied about the Hebrew children, saying, oh, they're being born so fast, so quickly, we can't kill them. Remember that? Moses hid the body of the Egyptian that he killed. He deceived. David pretended to be insane and crazy when he lived with the Philistines. So we have great heroes of the faith who used deception and lied. But here's a key thing when you and I, because I've talked to many people, and when we come to the story of Rahab, people want to just focus on her lying, on her deception. And I can understand, because it's hard for us to, to accept that and to, to understand that tension. But what you and I must understand from these instances, especially as we're talking about Rahab, is that all of them are descriptive. If you're taking notes, you may want to get They're descriptive not prescriptive. In other words, they are describing events as they happen. It's not saying follow after Rahab. Don't do that what David did. Don't be like Moses and be a murderer. Many times scripture is just silent on some things in scripture. It's describing something. It's not telling us to follow them. The Bible tells us to what? Imitate God. To follow man as Paul says, follow me as I what? Follow Christ. So when you and I look at here, we need to understand when we're reading through scripture, is it describing something or is it prescribing it? Is it saying thou shall or thou shall not? There are many occasions of scripture where God's children were disobedient and sinful. But scripture is silent in condemning their actions. And we must not use these examples as evidence or excuses for us to sin and to follow the same example. What we must understand is that the focus on this chapter is not on Rahab's deception, but on her confession of faith concerning the Lord of Israel. So there's her deception. Let, let's take that and recognize that's part of the, uh, of the history. This is part of it. But this is something that's being set aside. This is not the focus, though it's the most exciting, it seems, of the event. So secondly, what I want to look at is Rahab's confession. For this is really what's important as we look at this portion. This is the highlight excuse me, of the passage, as Rahab confesses that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one and only true God. Look at ver uh, back at verse 11. Again, you, need, you must underline and highlight this in your Bible if you do that. Rahab says, for the Lord your God. 
And you see the Lord is, is capitalized. That there is the personal name of God. That's, that's the I am. That's Yahweh. That's what God means. It's I am. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, you have to remember one of the reasons that God is going to destroy Canaan is because they were very wicked people. And they had multiple of gods. They served and worshipped all from sun gods to insect gods, moon gods, water gods, uh, uh, fertility gods, all sorts. So for her to come and say that there is only one true God is a very big confession. It's the same confession that Peter, by the way, makes when he says, for you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the confession that God is looking for you and I to also proclaim. Now, this confession declaration does not come out of the blue, but through the knowledge that brought fear to her heart. And that fear leads her to acknowledge God, but then to worship her statement marries the, or mirrors the Shema that every Hebrew children must learn growing up. We, saw, we read it just a little bit earlier with Ivy's dedication. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Though Rahab was not born a child of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, nor did she learn the Shema growing up. She was brought to the knowledge of Yahweh through his miracle working power in Egypt. She gained a knowledge from outside of herself. In Exodus 15, we read the song of Moses that captures the joy and the worship when Yahweh delivered Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh and his armies. We did this when we looked at Exodus several years ago, but here it's on the screen. Is it on the monitor? Thank you. Listen when Moses says, I will sing to the Lord... For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then we go down to verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength into your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pains have seen the inhabitants of Felicia. Now this was written years ago. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan, speaking even of Jericho have melted away. 40 years prior, coming out of Egypt, the news is already reaching land and coming back to Moses. And that knowledge is leading them to fear and then to worship. 40 years later, the people of Canaan still remember this miraculous event. And still it has them in terror, leading to their hearts being melted and with no spirit left in any of the men. This is Yahweh's work as he promises that he would go before Israel into the battle. This is the first recorded psych operation, psychological warfare against an enemy as Yahweh's reputation preceded them. This reminds me of General Mattis, one of my favorite American generals. He was the former Secretary of Defense who in an interview was asked this great question. This is the best answer I've ever heard. He was once asked, what keeps you awake at night? And without skipping a beat or bat an eye, Mattis said, nothing. I keep other people awake at night. 
That's the type of general I want leading my armies. You know what? That's the type of man I want to say, nothing keeps me awake. I keep up. That's the God. That's our God. That's our Lord. He is keeping them awake. They are melted with fear. They are trembling. They know that their time on earth is limited. Yes, they're going to put up one last battle as we move our way through Joshua, but it's all in vain. The knowledge of the power of Yahweh brought fear to Rahab's heart. And this is a proper response to the knowledge of an almighty and holy God. Many times we, we recoil at that, that, that fear is not something that we as children should have of our father. But yet we need to see that fear is a proper response to an almighty creator of the universe. I mean, he, he's the almighty power of the universe, the ultimate power of the, of the, of, of the universe. King Solomon wrote to his son in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. And I pray that you grab that this morning. I pray that, that you have a fear of God. Jesus told us, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who kills the body and soul. And many times people say, well, that must be Satan. Well, no, Satan has no power. He has no power over the soul. It's God who has the power over body and soul. Whereas the knowledge of Yahweh's power brought fear that led to rebellion and a hard heart to the residents of Jericho. That same fear led Rahab to confess and worship the one true God. Fear in the Bible means respect and reverence and piety. That's the proper response for those who come to know God. To know God is to fear God. To fear God is to have wisdom. And you say, well, what is wisdom? We think of that as just intellectual knowledge, but wisdom is the skill of godly living. If you never knew what wisdom is, it's the skill of godly living. It's knowing who God is, who I am, and my need for God. And so you and I need to have that piety, that reverence, that respect recognizing that there's nothing that stands between me and, and hell except for the kindness and the goodness and the mercy of God. So that's her, that was her, uh, I'm sorry, that was her confession. I want to go to the third point I want to look at is her deliverance, Rahab's deliverance. You see, because her knowledge and her fear and her worship led to her deliver, deliverance. Her knowledge of the power of the one true God leads her to fear his judgment, which leads her to faith. Her faith leads her to action in providing kindness to the spies in return for their kindness for deliverance from the upcoming conflict. Now, as we read, the spies readily accept her offer and they promise to save her and her family from destruction. And she responds to their promise in helping them escape the city undetected and unharmed. Now, this deliverance is part of God's plan. You say, well, why does God choose Rahab to deliver? Why is they doing it? Shouldn't she be devoted to destruction? But you and I must understand that the deliverance of even Gentiles has always been part of his God's redemptive plan. Going back to Yahweh's promise to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, he says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is Rahab doing? She is blessing the children. So God is just being faithful to his promise that he will bless them. 
And by the way, faith, what is faith? I've given you several definitions. There's the biblical one. It's, it's, it's seeing without believing. But it's also that bold and courageous obedience to God's word in defiance of circumstances and consequences. But it's also of a simple one. It's a confident trust in the promises of God. Rahab had a confident trust in the promises of God. Somehow, someway, she had heard that God will bless those who bless Israel. Rahab is one of the first Gentiles to receive this blessing. Rahab would go on to become the wife of one of those Hebrew children, soldiers. She would become the great-great-grandmother of King David. In Matthew's gospel, we read that she is one of only four women mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. And by the way, all of those four women are Gentiles. It's not her deception that God honored, but her faith. That's important. As you and I read this story, we're, 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 we're drawn to her deception because that's the exciting part of what's going on. But it's not her deception that God honors. It's her faith, her confident trust in the promises of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it's here on the screen, the monitors. This is what we read of Rahab, the traitor, the prostitute, the one who ran a brothel, the one who lied to the authorities. It says, by faith, by confident trust in the promises of God, Rahab, the prostitute, doesn't, it doesn't quote, cover up what she was and what she did, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Turn to the letter of James, if you would, in the New Testament. It's found there in the back of the Bible, New Testament. James, the half-brother of Jesus, just as God's kindness is to lead us to repentance, our faith is to lead us into action. So her faith had to propel her to do something. Her faith, though, is imperfect. She lied. That was wrong. That was sinful. Let's mark that down. Could she have done it some other way? We could debate that. We're not there. We're thousands of years from that time. But we must admit through scripture, what she did was wrongful and sinful. But of course, there was much more in her life that was sinful and wrong as well. Her faith, though imperfect, led her to show kindness to the spies. In James chapter 2, verses 18, read along silently with me. It says, but someone, James says, will say, you have faith and I have works. Now this is that debate. How do I get to heaven? How, how do I know that I'm a child of God? Is it by faith, confidence, trust, or is it by works? Is it doing good works? Is it doing things to make myself look good? Or is it righteous acts? Here's that debate. He says, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. That's the confession of faith. You do well, even the demons believe, though. But look at this. They shudder. There's many of you who would say, yeah, I believe in God, but there's no trembling. There's no fear of God in your life. You believe one day you'll stand before God and just say, hey, I was a good person. I went to church. I gave money. I, I did all these things. Of course you should accept me. 
My, my mother was a member of the church. My great-grandmother. I have her Bible right here. But as we see, our works are empty. When it comes to God, we all come short of the glory of God. But they shudder. But in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So now he's speaking to those that say, well, I trust God, but I don't have to do any good works. So is it works or faith? Well, it's both. They work in tandem together. In other words, we are not saved by our works, but we are saved for our works. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us. Now go down to chapter 2, look at verse 24, four verses down. He goes, you see, a person is justified, is made right in God's eyes by works and not by faith alone. There, there must be something in which you show, you demonstrate that you have faith. To say you have faith and believe in God is easy, but living it out is difficult. Verse 25, in the same way was not also, look at this, Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another. Here she is, thousands of years later, still remembered by the Jewish people for the kindness she showed to their forefathers. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Her faith led her to disregard her property, to disregard her profession, her people, and her culture, and chose to align with the people of Israel and their God. She changed teams, so to speak. Her faith was more than just theological and intellectual, but practical, just as you and I should be. My only worry is here is this church, we, we love the theological and we love the intellectual. But I want to make sure that Orangeville Bible Church is a practical church that is loving their neighbors just as much as they're loving God. That we're meeting the needs of not only our own people, but those in our community and those in our families. Her faith caused her to take a risk. It took courage and it took boldness. It was safer for her to tell the truth and just turn those spies over. She might have gotten a great reward. Maybe the favor of the king. But her faith led her to make more difficult choices. And I'm here to tell you that some of you are living this out. Your faith is going to cause you to make some very difficult, tough choices. It may cost you friends. It may cost you family. It may cost you job. It may cost you some social respect. You may wind up being one of those that is canceled. But it's going to cost you. But you might cry, she lied and she, she deceived. Obviously, that's an accusation, an accusation that we can make towards her. It can be an impediment to our understanding of faith. How do we reconcile this? Well, to help us understand and reconcile this tension. It's good to remember that the redemptive story of Rahab is a micro story of the larger story of our salvation, of God's redemptive plan. We are not saved by our works, but by the works of Christ. Even Rahab's confession, conviction, and her conduct is counted faith, not by her works, but by her faith in the promises of God. It was not enough to say that God is the only God. She had to demonstrate it by protecting and blessing those who God was protecting and blessing. In the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, I'm glad for this. I had to go look this up and I said, well, how do we, how do we deal with these tensions? Dr. Gleason Archer writes, 
that Yahweh's mercy through forgiveness of sin. And here's what you and I must not miss in Joshua 2 and all the adventures that's going on. Is that the Lord has always condemned sin. And let me tell you, he condemned the sin of Rahab. So much that he laid the guilt of every sin on his sinless son when he died for sinners on the cross. You see, God's mercy covers not only our sin, but the lies and deception of Rahab. She's not left out there as a heroine. As you see, every time she is identified in scripture, she has this, she has this little descriptive, Rahab the prostitute. How would you like that? Hi, my name's Rob. I'm a sinner. Hi, my name is Rob. I'm a liar. You know, you, know, you can do that, uh, what's that? Who's that guy that goes to the beaches, the way of the master, uh, comfort? Yeah. yeah, yeah, go out there. Yeah, I'm a living, thieving, adultering, you know, sinner. Well, but every time she's mentioned, it has that qualifier, that descriptor of her. But in the other one, it shows us that she is a woman of faith. She was a wise woman. God's mercy covers sinners. And this is something wonderful we looked at in our Sunday school this morning. And I'm going to share it with you. Is that what happens is God doesn't overlook her sin, but he absorbs it within himself. So here we see real quickly, here's the gospel. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is what? Is death. So God has condemned sin. So every sin must have a penalty. That is what we call justice. If God was to overlook sin, he would not be a good just king, would he? Just as you and I think. If someone here uh, murders someone, you and I are going to cry out for justice. Many of the cries today is people are not seeing justice be done, at least justice in their eyes. This is a big theme that we're seeing today. So it should be easy for us to recognize. And God says that the penalty of our sin is death. It is just. It is good. He is a wise, righteous king. And he cannot overlook sin. And let me tell you, he does not overlook Rahab's sin. He may not finish it right there, but he's looking to something much greater. So that when you and I think of our deliverance, this is what God is doing for us as well. So there is justice. Someone must pay. And that payment was, as Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you shall what? Surely die. Wages of sin is death. But the rest of that verse, really that but, always circle your butts in the Bible because something great is going to follow. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Can we go to the next slide? Is that there? What you see here, look, here's the gospel. Instead of that circle being completely injustice being done to you and I, that justice takes a turn towards the cross. You see, and at that time, that Christ absorbed the payment that was due to you and I. So Rahab doesn't get away with lying and deceiving. No, Christ absorbs it. Just as the way he absorbs you and I's sin. And he dies for us and he places upon himself our sin. Now what that picture doesn't show is not only does, not God, not only does God give us or does God take our sin and place it on Christ who absorbs it and absorbs the wrath of God, but he takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it on us. You see, so when God looks at us, he sees his son's work, not mine. We are to do good works. But in the end, God sees the works of Christ. 
So when God looks at Rahab the prostitute, he sees his son in her. That's the great deliverance of Joshua chapter 2. Even in Joshua chapter 2, the gospel is being proclaimed. Now it's, it's still dim, but you and I now can sit here and look back and see the glory of God being done. The Lord does not accept sinners as partakers of his, of, of, of his redemption because of our sins, but rather because of, her fa- because of their faith. And so in the same way, Rahab is delivered in this case because of her faith. This covering and absorption is aptly demonstrated and displayed by the scarlet cord that hangs from her window. Now think of that. That seems to be kind of a throwaway line there. But it's a wonderful picture of the deliverance that God promises when he told the Hebrew children to put the blood over the door. Or when we think of the cross and placed on Christ. One of the one of our great hymns is, When I see the blood, I will pass. I will pass over you. And as we get into the story of Jericho next week and the week after, is we're going to see is that as the walls fall down and as, as the armies of Israel march into Jericho, they see that scarlet cord and they pass over. Why? Because she has been delivered. God has a wonderful, great plan for Rahab. She is going to be the great, great grandmother of David. She is going to be one of the, the, or one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. She has been delivered from the, from the, from, by the providence of God. So as we consider that, I want to ask the question as we get close to the end, is how does this passage prove to be profitable for you and I? What do you and I do with Joshua 2 other than to tell our children, don't lie, except if, you, if I need you to for me? How do we deal with Joshua 2 other than just an exciting adventure story? Well, I think there's three ways. One, this tells us that God can transform even the lowliest of sinners. God can transform and deliver the lowliest of sinners. There was nothing of Rahab that was deserving of her deliverance. Even her kindness was not enough to deliver her in that regard. God would have been just and right to have her condemned with everyone else, but he didn't. In Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This begins what we realize is that you and I are in need of a savior and we mourn over our sin rather than praise our works. If you're here this morning, and you think you and God have got a thing worked out and that when you stand before him, you're in pretty good shape because of your good works. I have bad news for you. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger. Not after our goodness and our good works, but the things of Christ. So God can transform even the lowliest of sinners. We see this many times in scripture. Many Gentiles come to know the Lord. Paul himself, that you and I would say, is the greatest Christian ever lived. He says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. But then you yourself say, wait a second. I know that I'm the chiefest of sinners. I know that I'm the lowliest of persons. Let me tell you, I don't care how bad you feel, how much guilt and shame you may have because of what you've done or what life has brought you. God can transform you. There is no sin so powerful, so dreadful, so awful that God's grace 
cannot reach you and transform your life. You and I need to have joy and lead to worship and sharing the gospel that God can transform even the lowliest of sinners. The second thing I want you to see from the passage is that God is involved in our battles. We don't go it alone. Last week we read in Hebrews that God promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That was the promise that he gave to Joshua back there in Joshua 1. But he's given that to us today as well. So that we can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And some of you need this this morning because I know that you're in dire situations. Your faith is being tested. He knows the temptations you face. The sin that still resides in your flesh. The schemes of Satan as demonic hordes to paralyze you and destroy the children of God. But David in his battle with Goliath cried out, The battle is the Lord's. It is Jesus who has destroyed the works of the devil and has redeemed and ransomed his people from their sin. It is Jesus who continues to pray and advocate for those he has reconciled. Think of that. Jesus prays for you even at this very moment. Let us not lose heart. For scripture tells us, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he also calls and tells us that we are more than conquerors in Christ. Number three, we are called to live out our faith in worship. These are the words that are encouraging to give us strength this morning. This is how Joshua 2 is profitable for us today to recognize that, that he can transform the lowliest sinners, that he's involved in our battles. We are not facing life alone, but we're also called to live out our faith in worship. In the New Testament, Jesus calls us to obey the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength, as well as to love your neighbor as yourself. So I want to talk about your heart real quickly. What he's telling you when he tells you to love him with all your heart, you need to recognize that your heart consists of three things. You know these things. It consists of our mind, what we think. It consists of our affections, what we love. And it, can, and, it, if, and, it, and it consists of our wills, the things that we choose. So he's saying those three things must come to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Those things must be delivered. They must be transformed. As noted before, we are born with a wicked fallen heart. Now that's not my word. That's the words of Jeremiah. He says that the heart is desperately wicked. I'm here to tell you that even Ivy needs a savior. She is born in sin. And one day, without being delivered, she will face an angry, wrathful God who will pour out his wrath on her. That's alarming, as it should be alarming. Hence why we say we must share with her the truth that God delivers. That God can transform. And the knowledge of him leads us to fear him, which leads us to acknowledge him, which leads us to worship him. So what our wicked fallen hearts need is a new regenerated heart that only comes through the blowing and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And I pray here that all of you here that are listening to me this morning have experienced this miraculous event. If not, I would call you, please repent and turn to Christ today. And you say, wait, repent from what? From your works. From believing that you can make yourself okay with God. That you can please God through your works and through your religious observations. It's not how we become saved. It's not how we become Christ. We must turn to him. Once we have been given a new heart, 
it would change your beliefs, your mind. It would change your love, the things that you love. It will change your obedience. And that's what happened to Rahab here in Joshua 2. Her mind, her beliefs, her love, her affections, her obedience, her will was transferred from the place of Jericho to the place of Christ. It was transferred from just pleasing herself and doing what she was called to do to the things of Christ. That's what you and I can get out of it today. And that's the sanctification journey, right? Becoming more like Christ is having our beliefs, our, our, our affections, and, and our wills become more aligned with the things of Christ. Now, one thing to consider as I do close, I promise, is that Rahab had the same information as the rest of the populace of Jericho. Jericho's king and all of its people had the exact same information, heard the same stories, saw the same reports as Rahab did. They all felt the same fear and terror, but only Rahab was moved to obedience. So as you hear my voice, it's not enough to say, boy, I'm in fear and trembling, but you must move to obedience. That's response of trusting Christ. God could have delivered all of Jericho from his wrath and destruction. He could have delivered all of them if they would have called out to him. But only Rahab exhibited true saving faith. That faith will lead to confession and worship. So would you join with the rest of the saints in singing, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. May the Holy Spirit blow this morning. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, as well as Randy for our pastor's prayer. And I want you to take a moment to pause and consider Joshua 2, maybe for the first time in a different type of way. Consider what scripture has for us as we look at the deliverance, the deception, but yet Christ coming and transforming her. And then I'm going to ask you to pray. And ask the Holy Spirit, how is this profitable? In what way should I respond? In what way should I, should I trust? Am I, am I trusting enough? Do I recognize that God is going before me in my battles? Do I recognize that he has transformed me? Will I trust him with my life? I pray that you do so this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Randy, would you come and close us with our pastor's prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.